You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to our February episode of Simulcast Journal Club. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon. How are you, Ben? Mate, I'm good. Nice to be back. It is indeed. We survived uh, IMSH and back in the day-to-day real world. And on that note, just for our listeners, uh, we will be releasing five episodes from IMSH of highlights from the floor, the exhibitors, the speakers and the attendees. So uh, look out for those. They'll be in the simulcast feed or downloadable from our website. So uh, we're going to do what we normally do. Ben's going to tell us about the paper of the month and some of the discussion and expert opinion about that. And then I've got three extra papers for us to dip our toe into some interesting topics as well. How does that sound, Ben? So uh, late last year, you released that lovely podcast with Dan Raymer and Cara Allen regarding sim safety, and in particular, the newly released editorial on simulation safety that was featured in a number of journals. And I was really keen to scaffold onto that because uh, one of the things I have a little bit of a gripe about is that often we kind of in medicine quote the evidence without necessarily actually reading it ourselves. And so when I read through Dan's editorial, I noticed it made specific reference to the case of patients getting simulated sailing and uh, a number of those patients getting very sick and some associated deaths occurring as well. And I'd have to say that I'd heard about that sort of in casual conversation and and. to be honest, been fairly disparaging, particularly when I learned that, you know, a sim center per se wasn't really involved. But reading it was quite enlightening and uh, confronting. So I thought, well, let's just jump on the back of what you've done and uh, make that paper this month's article. So the paper's called Practically Sailing, uh, and it's a case report by uh, Schroeder et al., and it was published in 2015. It's in the Journal of Investigative Medicine high-impact case reports. And essentially what the article describes is that in December 2014, the FDA reported that 45 patients in the US had been exposed to non-sterile saline that was created specifically for use in simulation. And those exposures had led to uh, 25 adverse events, 11 hospitalizations, and two associated, not necessarily causative, deaths. Um, And this particular case study describes the story of a man who, after a cosmetic procedure, had come to hospital with a lactate of nine, which for those of you who are not medical is very high. Um, And his blood cultures grew an unusual bug, which I probably will mispronounce, but it's Empedobacter brevis, which was uh, successfully treated and the guy got better. But it had turned out that his surgical clinic had ordered simulated non-sterile saline, believing it to be the real thing, and then they'd administered an IV. So I'd certainly found this case quite confronting, and it made me really think a lot about a lot of the principles that had come up in the safety editorial, but particularly the concept of fake medications being somehow safer in the simulated environment. Um, How did you take it, Vic? Yeah, I think your advice to have a look at the deep dive is interesting. Like you, it's easy to write off and go, how could people do something so ridiculous? But the reality is if you pull something off your shelf, you're working in a hospital and it says saline, you're probably going to have a very high likelihood to just use it without looking for something that you're not expecting to see, which is it's a simulated drug. So uh, very interesting. Yeah, so uh, we had a really big response this month uh, from a number of uh, people from the world of simulation. 
And I'd have to say, actually, summarizing this month was really hard because we had such a diverse set of responses from an incredible lineup. But uh, big things for me included really this concept that the boundaries between the simulated and the real world is much more blurred than we recognize. And then we also discussed how organizations respond to safety breaches. So this case was interesting because it involved patient harm from simulation equipment, but there wasn't involvement of a simulation team. And in some ways, this does make the case easier to to dismiss, but in other ways, it highlighted that the way that simulation affects our real world is is sometimes unanticipated. So some journal clubbers, such as Jennifer Dale Tam and Janine Kane, shared stories of near misses in simulation safety. And uh, people described events with equipment and simulated patients, but also uh, kind of the implicit role confusion that comes from being a clinician who also sometimes runs simulation. Lara Joyce, for example, outlined in her anecdote that uh, in the past month, I've had two experiences of dragging very unwell patients out of cars at the front of the department and having to repeatedly say to my colleagues, this is not a simulation. This is not a simulation. I don't know if that's happened to you, Vic, but it certainly happened uh, to me a couple of times when I've called for help. I think it is a real risk and we've certainly talked about how we label ourselves in the clinical environment as well and I think she made mention of that. Yeah, absolutely. And then Shanna McNamara came on and voiced concern regarding both physical damage but also uh, psychological damage to participants that might be sustained through simulations and particularly she had a lot of concerns regarding the impact of some private companies that run active shooter drills in the US which I thought was a good point. We then explored how organizations respond to some of these safety breaches. Um, And I'd have to say there was a really interesting discussion about how heavily to respond to quite an unusual case. Um, Chris Nixon, for example, argued that an awareness of the safety considerations is vitally important. However, I think we also need to make sure we don't throw out the simulated baby with the real non-sterile bathwater. And Jenny Rudolph added to this through sharing her experiences investigating nuclear power plant safety breaches. And she described that when processes that are tightly coupled, think of chemical or physical chain reactions, intersect with complex systems, think distributed, adaptive computer networks with multiple interdependencies, then none of us should be surprised when small anomalies chain together in unexpected ways to produce catastrophic accidents. And then she shared this really interesting finding from one of her studies, which is that the safest organizations balance high standards for tight control of safety practices on one hand with learning through transparent reporting practices and assuming the best of people on the other. And then Eve Purdy nicely took us even deeper as only Eve Purdy can do and asked us to explore our own beliefs about simulation. She described, can we do a more thorough job of exploring the near misses? The most common belief I've seen is that sim educators and participants think using fake medications is a better idea than real medications in the sim environment. An exploration of those beliefs, not just correction of them, might lead to more enhanced understanding. Well, it's all about the anthropology with Eve, isn't it? We've got to put the culture in there somewhere. Absolutely. <laughs> but but I think it's true. Sometimes we've tempted to take a sort of superficial look through it, uh, whereas clearly it's going to be much more complex than that. I do think that for me, the thing that resonated most in all those comments is the need for some kind of reporting system, because at the moment, I don't think we know what the numerator or the denominator is. Uh, But having watched those reporting systems grow up in the clinical world, I don't underestimate the challenge of doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, our expert uh, commentary from the month actually addresses that in some detail. 
So, Anne Mullen is president of the Foundation for Healthcare for Simulation Safety and program manager at the Institute for Medical Simulation. And uh, I'm a big fan. She's a wonderful person, very gentle, very kind and caring, and she has this real quiet passion for simulation safety. And I'd have to say her involvement this month as expert was phenomenal uh, to the point that I actually (laughs) almost took some time off because she was uh, responding to everyone's comments so beautifully that I had nothing else to add. Uh, She really actively engaged with every person who commented online and it was such a privilege to have her along. She starts her commentary by saying, As I reflected on the impact of this article on the SIM community, I'm struck by the threat that this incident poses to our identity as patient safety advocates. Simulation professionals play a key role in promoting safe practice, and the realisation that simulation can cause harm is jarring. We hear examples of the same error occurring repeatedly, yet the story is not shared, perhaps because of the absence of a reporting process, risk of embarrassment, harm to reputation, or other possible consequences. There are many barriers to open discussion of our mistakes. However, if we're safety advocates, we must make our simulation community aware of risks, close calls and accidents so we can learn from them. And the authors of this case report have done us a service by publishing the incident. Anne then explores how the practically sailing case was a sentinel moment for her and led to the establishment of the Foundation for Healthcare Simulation Safety, which in turn led to creation of medication safety labels, as well as uh, the development of an online reporting system. But she explores just how challenging it is to establish a worldwide patient safety database and the number of barriers that she's experienced trying to roll it out in a world where there's different standards in different countries and different reporting expectations medico-legally as well. She then closes with some concern regarding uh, specifically uh, simulations involving potential gun violence in the US. And uh, this was a conversation that came up a few times at IMSH as well. There's obviously a big issue in the US and she outlines a number of near misses that have been reported. So thank you, Anne, for a lovely commentary and also for the amazing amount of time that she poured into the Journal Club this month. It was really, really appreciated and I can't thank her enough. Yes, I know I keep saying it, but uh, folks should read your PDF summaries because it's a nice precy of both the discussion and then the expert commentary in detail. But I agree, it's definitely worth the read. And uh, it, it has had an impact, the fact that I've done the podcast and read this paper. Uh, certainly for us, we've now got a safety briefing that we do with both participants and the team before our sims now uh, and have a in draft at least uh, safety policy and I've been doing a lot of emailing with people to see what they've got and uh, I think all of us have made a start but I don't think any of us feel like we're comprehensively there yet um, because there are different risks in different places so we look forward to the agenda here moving on. You're listening to Simulcast. All right well thank you Ben do you think we'll um pop over and have a look at these uh, other papers now. Sounds good. All right. So the first one that uh, I have to share is by our friends in Melbourne and Adelaide. Margaret Beerman's the first author, and this is called The Power of Simulation, a Large-Scale Narrative Analysis of Learners' Experiences. Uh, and this is in medical education at the end of 2018. Uh, And as I said, I know the authors, they're my friends, but as per usual, they do great qualitative research work. So it's definitely worth a read, if only for the methods. Uh, But I'll tell you about where they started with this paper. 
And that is to really ask the question, what is this power of simulation, a phrase that they were quoting from Bill McGahey from Northwestern, uh, with the idea that we talk about how impactful sim is, but what does that really mean? Uh, And they sort of take a little bit of a deep dive into theory there and talk about transformative learning theory and uh, use a few big words that um, are meaningful big words, I guess, about uh, epistemology, that is the things where we don't just get new knowledge but we get new ways of knowing. And I guess that's a fairly significant change often in our thinking if we manage to have an effect as powerful as that. Um, I guess you rather liked a bit of dipping into epistemology, Ben? Absolutely. I was more into the uh, verisimilitude, though, personally. Oh, I love that word, yes. We'll we'll come back to verisimilitude. (laughs) So (laughs) anyway, they got to their key questions, and that is, what really are these powerful experiences narrated by educators about participating in simulation? And then what do those learning narratives, and they're going to use this word a little bit, reveal about how this uh, promotes or discourages learning? So they fortunately had a big amount of data from the NetSim program. So for non-Australians, this is a national faculty development program in simulation that's been running since 2011. Uh, there's both online and face-to-face uh versions of it. And this is essentially drawn from the online reflections that you do in the first module uh, if you participate in NetSim. And the question that is posed is, describe the most powerful learning experience you have had using simulation. And our authors analysed or at least looked at um, thousands of responses, over 5,000 responses, and included material or themes from 327 of those responses. So this is It's a fairly comprehensive data set that they're able to draw from. And what they found, and I'm going to use their terminology, uh, four categories of narratives. So this is the way people chose to describe these most powerful learning experiences. And the first of those was progress, and that is that people learn stuff. And the examples given were they learn things about death, about particular skills, about things that are keeping them current in practice. The second thing they described were practice narratives. Uh, That's where people describe this power as really being about the realism and its relationship to real practice. Uh, The third one they described was transformation, and this is where people have a very profound shift in the way they think about things. Uh, The example they give is speaking up, but I, I would certainly volunteer that myself about the first sim Uh, activity that I ever did as a learner at Monash where I really thought I'd never thought about teamwork like this. It truly was transformative. And then the last category of narrative they describe, it was small but distinctive, uh, to use their words, was the narrative of humiliation, which I know that many of us have experienced and possibly even perpetrated um, unwittingly or otherwise. So uh, I know, Ben, it's a kind of interesting approach using the qualitative methods that they have, but um, this seemed to make sense to me. What did you think? Yeah, so it's interesting because um, the I was being pretty lazy when I, first, when I first sort of scanned this article when it came up and sort of read through the abstract and the conclusions and um, sort of, I'm going to get in trouble for admitting this, but, you know, I, I kind of went, well, yes, yep, that makes sense, but... Um, didn't feel super hooked by the paper because it kind of made sense to me from a conclusions point of view. But I'd have to say, sort of taking the time now to read it more carefully, it's just such 
a lovely read uh, with a lot of individual insights as well as the collective conclusions and uh, the way that they do it is delightful and it's very much a paper that's like a fine wine that you've got to sort of savor and enjoy. Oh, I love that, Ben. <laughs> so a couple of other things to point out in their uh, analysis. They talked about some of the recurrent features of simulations, about having dramatic scenarios, about having often strong emotional valence and often that being negative, um, and about things going wrong. And I think that probably just shows that still simulation is a lot uh, about exciting things. Um, and I think uh, we don't do quite enough yet boring learning from the boring stuff. And the other things they added were these themes about learning, and this is where your favourite verisimilitude comes up, um, and that is about realism aids learning. Uh, they talk about social learning through feedback and debriefing and the importance of observation of others and observation of self and repetition. So, again, these aren't that surprising, but I think, again, the examples they give really illustrate uh, the impact of simulation. So their final conclusion is that the power of simulation isn't vested in one particular modality or approach or style, but rather we should consider simulation holistically when it comes to the experience of learners because there is much more commonality across those different modalities. Uh, and they also, I think, very cleverly and unsurprisingly from these authors, give themselves a couple of little departure points for what I presume will be their next papers. And one theme that really came out was about fallibility and the power of that um, that seemed to come through in many of the uh, quotes that were given. So I'm going to look forward to more, but I think it's a nice way to use the data you get out of your uh, online reflections. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what was one little pearl that I took out of it was when they talked about the humiliation narrative, which I'd have to say I was surprised they said was described so infrequently. Um, but they talked about how that generated quite a strong reaction, but that the reaction became focused on the teaching delivery rather than the teaching point. And I thought that was a useful kind of uh, frame to look at the effect of humiliation on teaching. You're listening to Simulcast. All right. Well, we might go on to our next paper now thinking uh, more about teamwork. And uh, this is a paper called Getting Better All the Time, Facilitating Accurate Team Self-Assessments Through Simulation. And this is from Amy Gardner uh, and Kareem Abdul-Fatah. And that's from uh, the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And these guys are surgeons. So um, this will explain the paper. And they really wanted to see how good are healthcare teams at assessing their own performance because they start with this background that they said it would be good if we could, uh, but they also were quite realistic in saying that, that we know that self-perceptions of individuals are not very good, but what about teams? So their question was, can teams accurately assess their teamwork and their team effectiveness? So the way that they did this was that they got uh, 10 three-person teams, all general surgery trainees, so single profession and obviously more similar than they were different, the people in the teams. And each of these teams did one simulation per day for five days, each lasting about 20 minutes. 
And they detail the scenarios uh, in the paper, but essentially there was a trauma, there was a cardiac arrest, there was an intraoperative fire, a conflict with a do not resuscitate order. So, you know, I guess things they might have to deal with. Back to the previous paper, though, all very exciting stuff. No uh, boring simulation in there. But then after each scenario, the team watched their video and then rated their team's effectiveness and teamwork. And one of the reasons I included this is just to look at the way they did this rating and they used uh, something which you can get a link to online, which is the eight-item Mayo high-performance teamwork scale. It's certainly not the only teamwork scale out there. There's many others, but uh, this is one to look at if you're thinking about doing some kind of teamwork assessment. The performance was also rated then by a surgeon and a PhD obviously, who weren't involved in the simulations. So uh, fairly exhausting methods, Ben. Uh, What do you think? How do you reckon these teams are going to go at rating themselves? I've got a funny feeling that they're going to think they're pretty good. (laughs) And is that just because you are a believer in Dunning-Kruger or because uh, (laughs) you've read the paper further? I did do my homework on both. Thank you very much. (laughs) Well, yes, Ben is correct. Essentially, for the first three of these five days, the resident teams rated their team effectiveness higher than faculty did, higher than the surgeon and the PhD who were watching. Um, But the ratings got much closer to the point of being essentially equivalent for the fourth and fifth simulation. So these were the ones done on day four and five. And then, truly in line with Dunning-Kruger, it seems that the teams who actually were better, i.e. as rated by faculty, uh, were more accurate at their self-assessments than the people who were lower performers. So again, consistent with what we observe in Dunning-Kruger. So what did they say about that? They say, well, teams get better because they did. Uh, Teams over time will self-assess better, but they're not too sure about what to do with this uh, because what their suggestions are is that if we can actually discover some strategies to help people in their self-assessment, obviously that's a good thing. There was a very funny uh, couple of sentences in here that I just oh, have I really to read like out. This. I know what yeah. you're going to read. It's towards the end. So this is the authors talking. Although we perceive that we have done a competent job in designing this study and drawing out relevant implications, our thesis suggests that this may be an overestimation of our skills. <laughs> So I think important steps in thinking about trying to move from only faculty feedback in debriefing and trying to, I think, uh, move the needle on self-assessment. But what do you think about this paper, Ben? Well, I think it prompts me to think about clinical event debriefing, particularly with sort of an info-style model where we're trying to reflect on our teamwork and work out if there's any issues that we can do better. I think that this kind of effect suggests that we might not be particularly effective at finding those flaws all of the time. Yeah, so what you're saying is, sure, we can stand around and have a chat about how it all went, but we may not be harsh enough on ourselves is, is I guess, where the bias would be. Is that what you think? Yeah, or I think, I mean, I don't... (laughs) I don't mean to say that like it's a bad thing and I want us all to attack ourselves as team, but I think this is a really interesting sort of the clinical impact for me of this paper is, you know, how how do you then teach teams to assess themselves effectively? 
Well, I guess this would suggest you should actually have some where people do their self-assessment and their info debrief, but where they have maybe a um, uninvolved observer join them and maybe then they can uh, be better at what they do. But it's hard to know because, I mean, the premise of this is that the surgeon was right about their performance. Uh, you know, like that's that is fundamental to this is that the gold standard is the surgeon's assessment of the teamwork and mm. You know, that's one view of a gold standard. It may or may not be. Well, and this stuff is really grey as well. I find it hard to fit a rating scale onto those things sometimes. And I appreciate that people have done their best, but it's interesting and complex and uh, challenging. All right. Well, we'll leave that one without a definite answer, but I think congratulations to the researchers because I think uh, there's more to come on this very exhaustive methodology to be that consistent over that many simulations with that many people. So we look forward to more. Mm. You're listening to Simulcast. So our last uh, paper is titled The Meta Debrief Club an effective method for debriefing your debrief. And this is in BMJ Stell in February 2019, hot off the press, and it is by O'Shea and colleagues, and it is an in-practice report. So it really is a description of what they do rather than trying to set themselves up as uh, rigorous research. And to be honest, I like reading papers like this that say, hey, this is what we did. Please feel free to take any ideas from it, but we're not pretending that we've proved anything. Uh, and so the introduction to this is debriefing is hard, it takes skill, faculty development is a good idea. And so then they proceed to describe uh, their debriefing, the debrief program, or as they call it, the Meta Debrief Club, or for short, the MDC. Uh, and so what do they actually do? It seems that people who are involved in their simulation programs meet as a group uh, once a month to review their debriefing footage. And it seems like their sim center works in such a way that they have these recordings. So that's been a help in terms of being able to uh, critique them. And they give two concepts and the basis on which they've had this approach, and that is deliberate practice as debriefers, and the second is Kolb's theory of experiential learning. And so, in fact, I think it's every week. They have 10 attendees, they have a chair and a scribe, and they do a pause and play of footage. Um, and their aim, as they describe it, is to have actionable take-home messages for debriefers. Uh, they think they've got some successful sessions and the way that they have recognized success is, and I quote, a casual and relaxed atmosphere, uh, the fact that people keep coming. Uh, but they do describe that there is still some hierarchy uh, and it has been helpful to use a structured tool and they use the OSAD, um, Objective Structured Assessment of Debriefing. So I thought a nice description, Ben. What did you think? Me too. And I agree. I really love these type of papers because I think they really strongly contribute to establishing a online community of practice and um, help us all to grow. And I was certainly talking to uh, Sarah Jansen's the other day and she was describing going to a um, an Indian restaurant that was really sort of nice and cozy and relaxed and uh, thinking about how it would make just a lovely place to have a sort of monthly sim journal club. And uh, so, you know, I, I thought I really enjoyed the paper. I really like the idea and I uh, appreciate them sharing it. 
Yes, and if you'd like more from this crowd, they've actually got a Twitter handle at Meta Debrief Club. Yes, and so give them a follow, guys. Go and uh, see what they're up to. I did check them out. It's a bunch of – I must be getting old, Ben, because very young-looking gentlemen uh, (laughs) who are clearly excited about their debriefing, staring at the camera. Um, But they they seem to tweet some good stuff about – various things happening in sim and they obviously seem uh pretty keen to promote this idea of peer reflection in a uh relaxed kind of atmosphere so we've i guess we've seen lots of different strategies for this and i guess this is just one to consider yeah it all just sounded so lovely you're listening to simulcast all right ben well uh what have we got in store for this month All right, so for the month of March 2019, we are going to look at a paper in Advances in Simulation that was released in December 2018, and it's entitled Cognitive Load Theory for Debriefing Simulations, Implications for Faculty Development. It's by Kristen Fraser et al., and it's a fantastic breakdown of uh, intrinsic extraneous and germane load with a sort of looking through the lens of debriefing, but it also pairs up uh, some great strategies for dealing with each of those things. So I look forward to another month. Yes, I love this paper when I read it, so I am looking forward to the discussion. Uh, And on that note, uh, people will be pleased to know the drama of what's happening or what happened to Snythe and now what's happening to the rest of the team is Calming down, but I think uh, it'll take us a little while to get over the murder, Ben. <laughs> Things can only get worse before they get better, Vic. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. I did think it was kind of funny, like in that first paper we looked at by Margaret Bierman and mm. amongst the humiliation narratives, yep. someone described a scenario a little bit like the murder of Snipe. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. People love the bloody, oh, it's a blackout in theatre murder. I'm sure that happened at my old hospital as well they're like oh this would be a great consultant revenge sim i think at one point you're listening to simulcast uh been great talking to you as usual uh just encouragement for everyone www.simulationpodcast.com uh go online add some comments to the journal club uh and or give us any other feedback for simulcast we're always keen to hear it so we'll see you next time absolutely thanks for a good month